Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we've chosen a topic that was inspired by me seeing um, somebody posting on social media of her sitting in front of what was clearly a Zoom meeting on a computer wearing her pants but a very nice top. And uh, it, it sort of prompted lots of conversations in social media about people whose home lives were a lot messier than they appeared in their Zoom conversations or Teams conversations. We're not going to talk about pants and Zoom meetings, but it prompted me to think about what is appropriate business attire and you know what sort of things are acceptable in the workplace these days I mean things have changed quite a lot over the years uh, since I started in work Heather I started off by having a look to see whether the definitions had changed a lot from um, from all those years ago so I found an article in Indeed's website uh, the recruitment portals website with a definition of the common types of business attire and they started at the casual end so we start with casual smart casual business casual business professional business formal and then there's a category called gender neutral professional dress Okay, so okay. I think um, there, there were lots of definitions and some sample cartoons of the types of clothes, but certainly when I started out working, business professional was everywhere. I did train to be an accountant, so you can sort of understand that. But in the offices now for accountants, unless they're going out to see a specific client, I'd say they're probably heading more towards business casual. And yeah, I think, yeah. I, and I think, think that's, some places are smart casual, aren't they, in general? Yeah, yeah. I think what's really interesting is that um, the whole, you know, define smart because, you know, once upon a time you might think that if somebody was wearing something smart, it would be expensive. And if they were wearing something casual, it wouldn't be. Whereas actually you can spend more money on a pair of jeans than you you know you'd need to if you wanted to go and buy a suit from Marks and Spencers or something so so it's all open to interpretation isn't it your definition of smart and my definition of smart and what's appropriate and, and what's too formal you know we have to think about as more and more people dress more and more casually then suddenly it can be quite intimidating if you turn up at a meeting in a suit and everybody else is in smart casual or very casual so I think yeah. that's really interesting. I think it's also interesting. You, you bring up um, the, the subject of a suit and maybe you could spend more on jeans. But one thing that I find quite difficult is if you've got a, a badly fitting suit. Yeah. Um, and this is men or women. And um, in the definition on Indeed, they actually say business professional means well fitted professional clothes may be tailored to fit you specifically and I think that's where you get the edge really um, a, a poorly fitting badly made suit is going to look worse than any type of well thought through casual dress with you know some nice looking jeans and a t-shirt isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely I um I did a bit of rooting around uh, a bit like you and I, I sort of went back into the history of business dress and um, I found an article in Business Insider where they talk very much about uh, 
formal dress where you know where men would wear suits and ladies would wear because they wouldn't be in senior positions obviously they'd be generally the secretary so they'd be wearing a twin set and a skirt never trousers you know all of that those types of things but um the article suggests that the idea of ditching a suit for more comfortable clothes when was started by hewlett packard when they introduced casual fridays in the 1950s um, but but then in the 1960s, um, Levi, there's an article that, that Levi Jeans um, picked up on where the Hawaiian shirt, the Aloha shirt, um, was introduced so that people could wear it on a Friday. So you know the, the traditional Hawaiian yeah. shirt, so that would be a dress down Friday thing and it would be... a Aloha Fridays, um, but it was classed as um, informal business attire in Hawaii. But what happened was people then were wearing, men were wearing these shirts, but then they didn't know what to wear with them. So um, they, the, um, a guy called Rick Miller, who was doing PR for Levi's, noticed that people were showing up in Hawaiian print shirts with sandals and shorts, and that was taking it too far. So Levi's came up with the term casual work attire when they introduced their Dockers jeans that weren't denim jeans. They were like a Chino. So they so they were sort of ramping it up again. So then you could wear those comfortably with an Hawaiian shirt. Uh, and, and, and it's you know, it, go, it goes on for ages as to you know what's acceptable what's what's not acceptable and then they started plugging a gap in the market to the extent that levi's created in the 90s a brochure called a guide to casual business wear which outlined how employees could outfit themselves to look appropriate for work they printed it sent it to 25,000 hr departments across the across america and um and there are some some excerpts of as to what they were saying you know don't be flashy don't wear dirty clothes no ripped jeans casual doesn't mean sloppy all sorts of avoid lo lingerie looks or too revealing outfits in the office so this whole thing was born back in the 90s which i don't know about you but that was probably certainly for me part of that tra transition time where you'd still wear a suit if you were going for an interview or if you were going to meet a client or an important meeting but in the office you could get away with not wearing a tie if you're a guy or just wearing a tie and chinos or whatever and, and a shirt clearly <laughs> i also had a look at uh, what companies can do about their dress code because uh, gone are the days where you can uh, as you were saying about the 1950s with um, the Miss Money Penny with her twin set and pearls and insists she wears high heels and things like that. So a good place to look for some guidance if you're thinking of introducing a dress code is the ACAS website. Just to pull out some key points from their guidance, um, the key thing is that employers must avoid unlawful discrimination in any dress code policy. And also that you may have health and safety re reasons for having certain standards, but dress codes must apply to both men and women equally, although they can have different requirements. 
and reasonable adjustments must be made for disabled people when dress codes are in place. Uh, lots of things to consider if you're an employer, but the main one is to avoid unlawful discrimination. Um, so I, I went back a little bit further into um, into our lives, into school uniforms, because I, th I thought, well, you know, where where do we where did we start? In, you know, in our lives as individuals, where did we start to be told what you wear and what you don't wear? You know, something smart on Christmas Day might be the thing or it might be PJs on Christmas Day because you're chilling out. But when I was a kid, we had school uniform. I wore school uniform from the first day that I went to school. And that was a tie and a shirt and a, and a you know, a dress. Um, it wasn't trousers. Uh, and even when I left secondary school, you couldn't wear trousers to school. Um, but we were able to wear a, an open neck blouse rather than a tie. But of course, now you look at school uniforms and generally kids are wearing um, polo shirts and sweaters um, and, you know, and trousers. Girls can wear trousers too. Um, some, some schools have more formal uniforms, but I started to look at, you know, what the pros and cons were. And of course, if within the workplace, if people are in uniform, i.e., you know, the suit is the uniform or the perhaps in the NHS, you know, people recognise if you're wearing certain colours within a certain hospital um, or within a certain setting, you have you're at a different pay grade, you're at a different pay scale, level of qualification, etc. So so actually our, the way that we dress starts to compartmentalize us and help us to make sense of the world a little bit and i think that as the changes with school uniform continue it's only i don't think we're ever going to go back to that really formal formal dress code at work because I, I think we've just moved on from that so it's actually a really massive subject when you suggested it i thought well all right yeah okay we're all you know I, 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 you know, I, if I've only got Zoom meetings and I'm in the office on my own, I will wear jeans. I might wear a nice top, but I would never go to meet a client in jeans. But it's actually much bigger than that. Now, as we come to our news section, I've, I've stuck with a bit of a theme, I'm afraid. And of course, um, it's it's the theme of the moment. It seems that the, these days a day is a long time in politics and we're recording this show on Wednesday evening, which is less than 24 hours before it's going to be transmitted. So there's every chance that what I'm about to say would have changed, moved in some shape or form. But I'm hoping that I'm going to be giving some confirmation rather than um, items of speculation. So hot off the press just before we started the show was the news that there won't be an autumn statement from the Chancellor this year. The Treasury has scrapped the plans for the autumn budget because of the coronavirus pandemic and have said now is not the right time to outline long-term plans people want us to see to see us focused on the here and now so we're confirming there will be no budget this autumn so so that's one less thing for us to think about but i was glad to see some more clarification on the following in the light of the announcements made by mr johnson on tuesday evening around um going back to work, reduce it, uh, funerals being 30 people, um, weddings being 15 people. We've got the, um, the, the power of six. Uh, but 
there's some confirmation from um, an article on conference news where the meetings industry association has confirmed that the department for culture media and sport has confirmed that smaller business and training events can take place in covid secure venues for up to 30 people well that's uh, good so, to know yes so that is yeah that is good to know because it you, you did get into that whole well hang on a minute you know what if you can have 15 people together at a wedding why can't you have a, a meeting or a training session or whatever so i thought that was really interesting uh and then uh, oh and on the back of that i unearthed something called the roadmap to reopening and operating safely version three now of course a lot of people have reopened their businesses and then are now winding things down again in terms of staff coming in but i thought it would be worth just revisiting that so i'll put a, a link to that on our our, our website but also um there again really late this afternoon there's increasing pressure on the chancellor to um announce some measures to keep the economy going as we have this potential six more months of restrictions he's meant to be um answering questions in the house tomorrow uh, today as this is aired thursday um and it's thought that there will be announcements made fairly soon so watch this space um, I'm sorry it's all coronavirus related, but quite a lot's been happening this week and I just felt it was worth um, us mentioning it. But Tracy, you've you've avoided coronavirus, haven't you? Oh, totally. Yes. So the well first news article I honed in on was about the, I don't know if you've seen the stories, Heather, about banks that have been enabling sort of corrupt transactions to take place around the world. Do um, we have to say allegedly? Allegedly, I'm, I'm not sure, actually. Um, let me just have a look here. No, they've been reported. No, they've been it's reported. Definite, right, that's okay. So um, this report has come from an, an investigative series called, it's uh, shortened to FinCEN, I think, F-I-N-C-E-N, and it's named after the US Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN. And they receive alerts from banks and other financial institutions about transactions which appear to be questionable. Now, those alerts are called Suspicious Activity Reports, or SARS. And I have Reuters to thank for this rather uh, excellent little summary of the situation. So these files were leaked from this institution and they pertain to roughly... 2,100 SARS, which were filed um, between 2011 and 2017. Um, it's actually a very, very small percentage of the total number of SARS that were filed, which is about 12 million during that time. But clearly some very interesting things were highlighted, including funds processed by JP Morgan for potentially corrupt individuals, and companies in Venezuela, Ukraine and Malaysia, money from a Ponzi scheme moving through HSBC, and money linked to a Ukrainian billionaire processed by Deutsche Bank. So this is sort of the background be behind those headlines that, um, that were, um, were all over the news a few days ago. Um, they look at um, signs of money laundering, insider trading, 
cyber attacks and various other types of fraud and that's what these SARs SARS, uh, actually report on. The existence of a report does not confirm wrongdoing but alerts regulators to possible criminal activity. So it's really interesting if you want to look into it further just do a, a search for something called FinCEN files and you can find out some of the details behind there. The uh, article ends with um, asking the question, what does it mean for banks? And it says it's not entirely clear what negative consequences, if any, there will be for the banks involved. Um, the revelations are unlikely to lead to regulatory penalties or fines because it showed the system is flaw, flawed, but it didn't make it clear that the bank had actually broken any rules. So you think it maybe paves the way for changing the systems or tightening up on the regulations a little bit. Even went on to say that some banks might need to update their technology and improve their compliance systems. So anyway, that's about FinCEN and banks and totally differently. Something caught my eye on the ONS website, which was about twinned towns. And it made me wonder, do twin towns still exist? Is it still a thing? And this report would show that it absolutely is. This ONS report looked at 60 British towns and cities that have a twinning link with towns and cities in Europe, mostly France and Germany. And they looked at information between 2010 and 2018. So there's a it's a really, really fascinating article in there because it's got the whole history of twinning. For example, I didn't know um, that the very first, um, sorry, a most famous link is between Coventry and Dresden. And that's because they both suffered catastrophic, catastrophic damage from aerial bombing during the Second World War. Yeah. And this is this after the Second World War was when twinning became popular. And the aim was to build links and exchanges between towns in the hope of bringing reconciliation and prosperity. So there's loads of information in there, but a couple of highlights. Apparently, population growth between 2010 and 2018 has been notably higher in British towns and cities compared to their German twins. But there are more people aged 75 and older in German twin towns and cities compared to British. British towns and cities generally have a higher proportion of native-born people compared to the proportions of native-born people in their German twins. There is a notable predominance of houses in British towns and cities rather than apartments compared with their German twins. And the proportion of 15 to 19-year-olds is generally higher in British towns and cities compared to their European twins. There's loads of interesting information like that. I, you know, I, I couldn't be further from COVID here. There's no mention of COVID in either of these reports, but um, I just thought it was, it was interesting. I'm not even sure what the business spin on this is, apart from it's come from um, a reliable source that we often refer to on the business community. So if you want to know more about uh, twin towns and 60 British twin towns in particular then go and take a look at the ONS website and we'll include a link for that on our blog which comes with the podcast on our website which is the business.community.
You're listening to the business community on Calon FM, and this week I'm going to review a, a neat little piece of kit that I've recently been using. It's called Yodec. Have you heard of it, Heather? I have not heard of you Yodec. Heard of, uh, Raspberry Pi. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so a Yodec is utilizes the Raspberry Pi, but it provides an online platform for you to use that Raspberry Pi or several of those Raspberry Pis uh, connected to display screens around your office or your restaurant or your school or wherever it is, which you can use as display screens. And you can have different things on different screens. You can put timetables in with different schedules. You can have a live view of what's going on on each screen. And I absolutely love it. At the moment, I've just got the one. So we, we invested in one of the um, pieces of kit. And for $99, we get the piece of kit and you get to use the platform for free. Now, there are lots of other different pricing mechanisms. So if you pay per month, you pay a price per screen, but you get the Raspberry Pi for each screen free. But we, we just thought we'd trial this, buy the one Raspberry Pi and get the platform free, rather than pay monthly for each screen and get the Raspberry Pi free. <laughs> okay, all right. I think I'm with you so far, yeah. yeah. Okay. So essentially the packages are range from $7.99 to $12.99 per month, depending on which grade, per screen. And for each screen, you get a piece of kit free. Okay. And we just chose the option without the subscription, but we paid for the piece of kit up front. Okay. And okay. It, it, it claims to be easy to ex, uh, install um, and easy to scale. Uh, and you can use any media type, any layout. And um, actually, after my initial concerns, thinking... I don't actually know what I'm doing here. When I watched a couple of YouTube videos, which they provided, it's fairly simple. And I've, I've first off, you start off by uploading your media, so photos or links to YouTube videos, or you upload your own videos onto this online platform. Then you create layouts on the screen, how you might want it to look, or playlists as to how you want for example i've got like a whole playlist on mental health and this plays for half an hour um, i've got a playlist with corporate videos on and then i've got a few layouts that play it you know just screens that stay still that fit in between these and then you can schedule so you've got a whole calendar ahead of you you can repeat the same every day or you can re repeat the same um on different days of the week and you can schedule in the timing for the whole day for each individual screen. It's absolutely wonderful. I love it. So is this a bit like, so when you go into a school, very often in reception, there'll be a screen that's got the daily notices in it, on it. Yeah, that's so, you know, an idea, yeah. Yeah, or you know, what time assembly is for different year groups, but then later on it might be showing artwork for, that people have submitted for their art exams or christmas fair stuff or is that it, yeah, so it's it, like a rolling absolutely. screen that's programmed yeah so it is just a display screen so it's not interactive yeah. so yeah it's the sort of thing that you get in a reception area yeah. uh, we're using it to, as a communication tool uh, within the workplace and so I, I looked at what it suggested for 
um, offices for um, certain uses. So it su suggests display dashboards so you can connect it into Power BI reports or, or into other um, metrics that you can help um, to align yourself with the corporate strategy. You can actually even have it loaded up so that if you press a certain emergency button, it will show um, an emergency and evacuation screen. Um, you can have um, widgets on there, so you can have social media feeds. Uh, one of the ones I've got has got um, the BBC Rolling News widget. You can have weather showing on there. You can have a clock. Um, you can use it for meeting room management so that you can dynamically manage who's in which meeting room and say when it's engaged. Um, and you could use it um, as we do, like for reminders for face masks and social distancing. Um, and like I say, I use it for health and well-being and for um, just some corporate videos. So we're just trialing it with the one at the moment. But the more I use it, the more I think, oh, we could do this or we could do that. You know, put something in the canteen that's got um, company news on there. Yeah, well, yeah. But, Really nice and really affordable for that type of thing. And I've seen on the website that it talks about um, restaurants and bars could have their menus on there. Uh, shops yep. could have promotional things on there as well. Uh, you can use it for um, hospitality, as you say, welcome to Mr. and Mrs. or welcome to this company, whatever. So, And you control it all from your desk. So even if I'm working from home, I've got access to control the display screens around the site. So really, really nice. So that's called Yodec. I'm sure there are other display screen platforms available, but this is just the one that I've been using and I found it reasonably priced, easy to use, and it gives really good results as well. So that's my review of this week. Wonderful. Wow. Okay. Well, I um, when I was crawling around looking for news, um, I came across an article that it's it's um, it's from last month, but I think it's really topical. Uh, and this is an article about um, in again in the wake of well sustainability, looking after the environment, and now the trying to avoid travel on public transport more and more people have been cycling to work or cycling some of the time to work i don't know how that's going to pan out as the weather changes but apparently uh, according to the department for transport um cycling levels have risen by up to 300 percent on some days and in some of the cities we have what used to be known as boris bikes but you know various um people sponsor bikes where you know you you literally put your money in pick it up drive it to the other side ride it to the other side of town park it up somebody else can have it but a company that make a folding bicycle known as a brompton for anybody who's a keen cyclist out there um, they have decided that their folding bike will now be able via subscription so from september uh, instead of having to pay a thousand pounds or more to buy a Brompton bicycle you can hire uh, you can pay 30 pounds a month which is about a pound a day uh, if you sign up for a 12-month contract or you pay 42 pounds a month for just a rolling monthly contract if you just want to try it for a couple of months to see how it goes and essentially you you get the bike you pick it up from one of their uh, what they're calling docks so there are a number of those around the country quite as you would expect near cities and towns where there are more densely where it's more densely populated 
and then basically you use that bike and when you can you can take it on the train if you want if you're doing a, a longer commute or you can in fact my husband and i were talking about this the other day as and when he might go back into the office he might park his car at his hotel and cycle in on a brompton if he had a brompton um cycle into the office and then cycle back to the hotel so he doesn't have to bring his car to the workplace so i just thought it was a really interesting story uh, and it got me thinking about uh being creative and uh, you know a lot of organizations have had to really innovate the way that they operate um and it reminded me of an event i don't know if you remember this tracy back in uh, march 2018 you and i went up to the university of chester and that's a lifetime a, ago now isn't it <laughs> well it is it's yeah crikey it's two yeah two and a half years ago um we attended an event an event uh about by a guy called paul mckay about thinking outside of the box yeah it was very and good i really enjoyed that do you remember we it was the whole thing about re rethinking dry cleaning Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, we, we talked yeah. about it on the show, didn't we? We did. We um, did. The so thing that had stuck in my mind when you mentioned it then was the the exercise to step through a piece of paper. Yes. Yeah. We did that yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so he talks very much about lateral thinking, and it re it reminded me of a book. Um, by Edward de Bono about lateral thinking. We've talked about Edward de Bono, Six Thinking Hats. Uh, and Edward de Bono talks about vertical thinking and lateral thinking. And when we're having to reinvent the way that we do business, uh, it might be that having a look at this book can, will help us to get outside of that rigid way of thinking that we have and, and, and take things um, to another level. So I thought it was worth flagging that up. So I'm going to put a link to um, not only the Brompton article, if anybody's interested in hiring a, a subscribing to a Brompton bike, but also a link to the book, which is the Edward de Bono Lateral Thinking. On the business community profile section this week, we're looking at a gentleman called Jay Blades. I believe his name is Jason Blades. Um, I found that out on Company's House. And he's a furniture restorer and he's a presenter. He's well known for presenting the repair shop, uh, which I have seen, and Money for Nothing, which I haven't, Heather. And you suggested him. Um, you, you spotted that he'd been all over uh, the news in recent months. Um, presumably because of his appearance on the on the, the TV. Uh, but what was it that inspired you to put him forward as someone to profile? Well, I think it was, um, it was largely to do with the fact that he, he's actually been around quite a while. Uh, and once, but he sort of catches your eye. He, um, I'm connected with him on LinkedIn. I see his posts. I love the imagery that he uses. So then I found out, okay, well, who is this guy and what does he actually do? Is he just a presenter? He isn't just a presenter. He, you know, he restores furniture. And so his story became interesting. And for me, whenever somebody seems to appear from nowhere and then suddenly they're everywhere, I like to think, well, there must be a backstory to this. You know, that doesn't happen overnight. So that's why I thought that it'd be worth us having a, having a look at what he does. Uh, and I think I think he's quite interesting in that he I mean, he he does his furniture stuff, 
he does the TV stuff, but he's actually done quite a lot of stuff with charities. Um, and that's kind of how he's evolved. And he's actually got some quite interesting and valuable insights to share for people who are running businesses or people who are trying to get a brand or an identity or a business off the ground. Uh, what I mean, what are your first impressions of it? You'd seen the repair shop, that, but that's that's about all. I mean, we watch it. You know, it's it's um, it's, it's compulsive viewing in our house. Uh, but what what are your thoughts about him where where did you get to well he really wasn't on my radar and until you mentioned him now I, i'd only seen the end of the repair shop because i think it might have been on before sewing bee or something like that and yeah. so i'd catch the end of it and I, I think i always noted that looks like an interesting show and just the sort of thing i might enjoy but i never really got into it but I agree, like you, um, whenever somebody appears to have come from nowhere, there's always a good backstory to it. And, and this guy, he's put his work in, this guy. He um, has. He, he has. And he, yeah, he, I, and I think that's the thing. The repair shop, there isn't really a commercial element to it. It's, you know, people are, things are being restored. People, it's a bit like Bagpuss. People bring their toy or their piece of furniture or whatever it is in and then it's restored by people who are absolutely brilliant at their craft uh, but what what um what jay does in the real world uh, is he commercializes that element so there there are three youtube videos that i think are worth um, are worth watching the first one is um where jay was involved with a, a social enterprise called out of the dark which helps um, uh, young people who need helping to work to learn trades. So basically they're taking secondhand furniture, stuff that's come out of a skip and they're restoring it and then selling it. So there's a commercial element. So they, they learn that process. Then um, there's another um, YouTube video where he's talking to um, a guy who heads up uh, a, a, a heritage craft I think it is. That's a body of people who are craftsmen and women. And he's talking about how to find your market for your brand in that video. So if you make something, if you produce something, or even just if you're in business, how do you determine who your audience is, what you have to offer, and how do you market that? And he's doing really well at doing that for himself. And then finally, a longer interview with the lady that we uh, profiled a few weeks ago, um, Holly, Holly Tucker, who was the founder of Not On The High Street. Uh, and she um, has a podcast and she interviews him on that podcast. And in that, he talks about bounce back ability. He's, he's had some tough times in his life and he thinks that that bounce back ability is the thing that has allowed him to move forward. And I think that there's quite a lot in there, particularly at the moment, that we might just take from his story that we could perhaps transfer into ours. So commercially, we don't really know how successful he is in terms of his company's accounts or anything because he's only been incorporated in the last year, I think. Yeah, I, I took a look at Companies House and um, there's J Blades Limited and J Co Furniture Limited, 
uh, both were incorporated in February this year, so there there are no um, accounts submitted yet. Um, but they're um, they're listed as um, companies that manufacture furniture, retail of furniture, lighting, and similar repair of furniture and home furnishings. So um, that those accounts aren't due to be published uh, for quite a while yet. The other thing I picked up on Heather was, um, according to his website, which is J jand.co um, he's a mainly self-taught craft, craftsman um, but he's had some guidance from some of the masters in art restoration over the years and it doesn't say so on on his website but i have read it somewhere else that he didn't really discover furniture restoration until he was 30 um, which is i'm looking now it's about 20 years ago um, so he left school with no qualifications at 15, having had all sorts of problems with racism and dyslexia. And he actually then went on to study for a degree at Buckingham University. So he's got a degree in criminology and philosophy. And, uh, and then he found his way to furniture restoration. And as you say, he's become an inspirational motivator through the work that he does with charities as well. So... Can I just say thank you for putting him on my radar? It was really interesting to research him. And uh, I, I think I might actually make some time now to watch the repair shop as well. Well, that's about all we've got time for this week. Uh, do join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. Join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.